Yeah, you know from the music, that means we need to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. start off by noting that it was a good week last week for scapegoating, with the news that former First Lady Melania Trump said she failed to denounce the January 6th insurrection because she was unaware of it. It seems she had spent that day working on a photo shoot of several rooms in the White House. Although we don't know which rooms those were, Ms. Rowland points out it surely was not the dining room. Melania Trump's former chief of staff, Stephanie Grisham, has revealed text in which she urged Melania to call for an end to the violence, to which Melania responded only, no. The former first lady now says that Stephanie Grisham, quote, failed to provide insight and information, unquote. So it seems that unlike everybody else in the White House, Melania was unaware there was a riot going on at the Capitol. We believe she was also unaware that at Rick's There was gambling going on. And it was a bad week, surely a very bad week last week for wildlife, specifically gorillas, with the news that Congolese authorities said that they will sell oil and gas permits in endangered gorilla habitat in a bid to become, quote, the new destination for oil investments, end quote. The drilling permits extend into parts of Virunga National Park as well as areas of tropical peatlands that store massive amounts of carbon. Last year, Congo pledged to protect its vast rainforest using $500 million in international donations for the next five years. I'm sure they're thankful for those donations. But wouldn't you know it? Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused oil prices to spike to tempting levels. And even places like Norway, which is a leading advocate for forest conservation, has begun increasing production. Congolese representative Tosi Mapanu Mapanu said that Congo needs to raise money to fight poverty and to grow its economy, adding, our priority is not to save the planet. Mr. Mapanu Mapano is described as Congo's leading representative on climate issues. But you know, if Trump does come back, maybe he can find a position at the new EPA. And finally, it was an ugly week for civil liberties last week with the news that librarians in Oklahoma risk termination, jail time, and a $10,000 fine if they help customers find information about abortion. Yes, apparently Oklahoma's Metropolitan Library System advised staff that with abortion now illegal statewide, they should avoid even speaking the word abortion, especially since patrons might try to trick them into using it so as to report them. Notes the week, one understandably anonymous librarian told Vice, this is very dystopian. I guess that's why they call them Okies. You said it, not me. Yes, if you're a buckaroo of the Buck Owens variety, you can send your hate mail to Edward McMillan at radioparallax.com. Actually, I used to work in Oklahoma. Well, actually, it was Chowchilla, California, but it, but it was Oklahoma. And I can attest to the fact that there were a lot of good people there. So if you have any ideas about kidnapping a bus full of school kids, just forget it, okay? 
We mentioned on last week's program how it was that Tesla CEO Elon Musk seems to have a one-man crusade against underpopulation of planet Earth, as he sees it. We can now add to his saga with the news that he evidently had a brief affair with the wife of longtime friend Google co-founder Sergey Brin, which led Brin to file for divorce last January. The Wall Street Journal has reported that Musk's fling with lawyer Nicole Shanahan, who'd been married to Brin for four years, reportedly began at Miami's Art Basel. Apparently at a party earlier this year, the world's richest man, Musk, dropped to a knee in front of the world's eighth richest man, Brin, and begged for forgiveness. At least that's according to the Wall Street Journal. Elon Musk called the article total BS and released a photo of himself and Bryn partying hours earlier. Shanahan's lawyer said the claim of an affair is not only an outright lie, but also defamatory. Over the past couple months, Musk has been accused of exposing himself to a female flight attendant at his aerospace company SpaceX, and was also revealed to have fathered twins last year with an executive in his company, which was just before his then-partner Singer Grimes gave birth to their second child. Oh, that Elon. Speaking of Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, among my other recent binge-watching activities on the TV, I stumbled across yet another excellent Frontline special. We talked about how good the power of big oil was several shows back and meant to do follow-up on it, but I don't know, may not get there. There's so many other things going on. The Frontline special I, I took in was a 2014 version titled The United States of Secrets. We may have talked about this previous in the show. Sometimes I just, I just can't remember, and neither can Mr. McMillan. So I can't recall whether we cited on this program the fact that after Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras flew over to Hong Kong to meet up with the mysterious figure who turned out to be Edward Snowden, they were watching television, a televised press conference with Barack Obama, after some of the things that had been released about what the NSA was up to pointed to the fact that widespread spying was way more prevalent than anybody knew. Obama said he would take one question from the audience about this development, after which he elaborated on the fact that, look, this is a secret program, we we need this program, and uh, I tell you right now, your conversations are not being listened to. Snowden knew this was not true. Your phone calls were being listened to. Your activity on social media was being monitored. And it was at that point he decided to go all in and release everything he had. One aspect of of this two-part special, which was especially intriguing, was the fact that this ability of the NSA to spy on everybody doing everything had two origins. One was in the wake of 9-11 and the massive failures of our intelligence services to prevent the catastrophe. Something we've talked about a lot on this program over the years. A guy from an Arab country shows up and says, I want to learn how to fly a plane. Not land the plane, I just want to learn how to operate the controls. And that got missed, supposedly. Since they'd done a really poor job of picking up the intelligence they were focusing in on, they decided that a really good solution would be to expand how much intelligence they were pulling in and take in everything on the internet. After all, That'll focus their direction more accurately, wouldn't, wouldn't you think? But what's really curious is the fact that this spy capacity was expanded to infinity by the fact that companies like Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, had learned sort of by accident 
that what you search for on Google was a gold mine to what advertisers wanted. They could then use what you were looking at and what you were interested in to tell, well, just about everything they, you needed to know about you and me and everybody else. Of course, when you look at the kind of things that people post online about themselves, you just have to shake your head. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, I would suggest, dear listener, that you at least at one point check out the TV program which dominates MTV these days called Ridiculousness. In years past, people were generally embarrassed by the buffoonery that they committed. Now, apparently, they want to show it to the world. I was over at my neighbor's, who a neighbor of mine likes to, a neighbor of mine enjoys this program, and when I'm visiting, I sometimes catch an episode. (laughs) The other day, there was one where, in case after case, guys on bicycles, unicycles, and sometimes on foot were executing maneuvers that generally wound up with them getting stuck in the crotch by the abutment or fence they were trying to leap over. I could not help but think of that Mike Judge classic film, Idiocracy, wherein the favorite comedy program in the future was titled, Ow! My Balls! By the way, that was a dystopic comedy future we're glad to see that George Jetson managed to avoid. Anyway, back to the Frontline special titled The United States of Secrets. During the production, at one point, a California state legislator appeared on camera describing how it was that Sergey and Larry came when there was a bill they were trying to get passed in Sacramento that would limit some of the mischief they were up to. And apparently, Sergey told the representative, well, look, we're not spying on anybody. Suppose somebody came into your house, didn't take anything, and left. That really wouldn't be such a such an intrusion, would it? Representative thought this was nuts. Now, it just so happened that, that I know this representative. We happen to have some cabins that are near one another on the coast. So I walked down yesterday and had a chat and suggested that this might be something we'd want to talk about on this program in the future. I obtained a tentative agreement to do so and a couple of interesting details. That bill, it was pointed out to me, did not pass because of the power of Google to influence other legislators. Of course, we're sure they didn't do that with money. And somewhat surprisingly, it turned out that Al Gore, in the midst of all this, took the side of Google, something I'm frankly a little disappointed to hear. Hopefully, we'll have more to say about that in the weeks to come. Speaking of alarming stories about spying... Another documentary I stumbled upon recently was one about the attack on the USS Liberty, which took place in 1967. It's a story we wanted to talk about at some length on this show, but this many years later, it was hard to find any of the people who had participated in the rather horrifying events. To make a long story short, the Israeli military during the 1967 Six-Day War deliberately attacked and tried to sink a United States electronic eavesdropping ship. There is no question whatsoever that the Israelis knew it was an American ship and attacked it anyway with the intention of sinking it. That would have resulted in the loss of 300 American lives. As it was, they killed 34. It's a hell of a story we'd like to delve into at some point, but it definitely will not be today. Another story concerning dirty politics of the 60s we may return to in the future is something that struck me while listening to our previous discussion on Radio Parallax with Michael Trackman. 
He discussed both Gideon versus Wainwright and Miranda versus Arizona. In the former Supreme Court case decided in March of 1963, it was agreed that the legal system is no place for amateurs. If you're arrested and accused of a crime, you need to have some kind of legal representation to have any hope of making it to the system. So it was that the idea of the court-appointed attorney came about. And something went off in the back of my mind about the matter of getting legal representation in 1963, having a court obliged to appoint a representative for you if you don't have one. What I flashed on was the sad story of Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy. I realized I was a bit vague on the concept of when it was the police were obligated to bring legal representation forward for the accused. It dawned on me that a a crime that took place in November of 1963 should have had in place by then a legal mechanism to provide representation to the accused, in this case, Oswald. So we contacted uh, our good friend Bill Simpich, who is an attorney interested in these matters, and asked him about this. He, too, thinks that he will uh, enjoy coming on this program in the future and talking a little bit about those details. It's part of the lore of the assassination that Oswald never talked to a lawyer. Oswald went before the world press in a press conference and pleaded for someone to come forward to assist him with legal representation, which caused the ACLU in a wimpy way to make some inquiries as to what that was all about. And if you can believe it, dear listener, because, well, you should believe it because it's true, the Dallas police told the ACLU and other legal representatives, well, no, he hasn't asked for a lawyer, despite the fact that he spoke into microphones of the world press and asked for a lawyer. I mean, if you don't believe me, check it out. It's on YouTube. I took the time to look up a summary of some of this, preparatory to talking to Bill, and it turns out that there's evidence all over the place that, that Oswald wanted a lawyer from the time he was arrested. One of the cops that had him in cuffs said, yeah, he was saying, yeah, I demand to talk to a lawyer. I know my rights. A witness to the shooting of policeman J.D. Tippett was asked to, to check out Oswald in a lineup. He was unable to identify him. He pointed out in his testimony to the Warren Commission that Oswald was berating the police and saying he wanted to have a lawyer present. Yet when the ACLU shows up at police headquarters and said, does this guy want a lawyer? He was told, no, no, he hasn't asked for one. Anyway, in all the mysteries surrounding the JFK assassination, that is surely not one of the major ones, but it's one I think is worth taking a look at. We're going to do that. Some find it a little suspicious that Oswald was making noise about getting a lawyer on Friday afternoon, shortly after the assassination, and yet he was not provided with the means of trying to reach a lawyer till the next day, which was a Saturday. Yeah, try calling your lawyer on a Saturday and see if you can raise him on the horn. The lawyer that Oswald supposedly wanted to retain as his legal counsel, a man named John Apt, is a story in itself, and we're going to leave that one for Bill Simpich to tell it. All right, I got a pile of papers here to talk about in the minutes we have left to us uh, that are concerning with technology, but I don't feel like talking about technology. What I think I'm going to talk about instead is the Dumbarton Bridge. Now, there are many bridges across the, the expanse of San Francisco Bay, San Pablo Bay, the Delta, etc. I think there's at least seven major structures. 
Well, more, depending on what you define as the Bay Area. But anyway, I would have to say that the Rodney Dangerfield among such Bay Area fans has to be the Dumbarton Bridge. I mean, its very name sounds kind of silly. Dumbarton? Anyway, the San Francisco Chronicle saw fit to write an article about the bridge a few days back. Having grown up a few miles from its eastern portal, I, I would say that in my youth, I, I drove across it many a time. That was the original bridge. It's sub- subsequently been replaced. In fact, the article in question shows a, a picture of the blowing up of the original Dumbarton Bridge in 1984. It was a drawbridge, a rather low drawbridge. The article points out that even a small sailboat would hold up traffic as they had to raise the center section. If you drive across it now, like the San Mateo Bridge, there is a high-rise section that prevents, uh, you know, you having to, <laughs> to do such things. I do have to take some issue with the, the article in, in the Chronicle. Describing the Dumbarton Bridge, it said its architecture is aggressively functional and the drive is nearly devoid of memorable views, spanning marshland while connecting the lowest key of Bay Area communities, Newark and Menlo Park. Even the name, Dumbarton, sounds like the sidekick to the villain in a Disney movie. Well, to the Chronicle, I would like to point out that unless you're blind, the views from the Dumbarton Bridge are quite exceptional, especially when you're driving west to east. No, it doesn't quite stack up to the world-class view you get going across the Golden Gate Bridge. But driving across the span yesterday, I observed San Francisco to my north, with Mount Tamalpais behind it, fog rolling over the hills near Belmont, Mount Diablo off to the left, Mission Peak off to the right, the Santa Clara Valley off to the south, with Mount Wilson in the distance, with the Lick Observatory perched atop it. It's a hell of a memorable view. And no, it doesn't connect Newark with Menlo Park, technically. The city of Newark, California, is surrounded by the city of Fremont, like the whole is surrounded by the donut. When you drive east from Menlo Park, you enter Fremont, not Newark. It's a small thing, but I do feel obliged to stick up for what was my hometown. Anyway, in spite of these these erroneous points of view in the article, I would note that uh, it's otherwise pretty good. It said there was a time when Dumbarton was nothing short of a sensation. Upon its January 27, 1927 debut, it was the first vehicle bridge to span the San Francisco Bay and at 1.63 miles, the longest highway bridge in the world. Conceived when San Franciscans still traveled to San Jose on dirt roads, the Dumbarton was a symbol of the future. It was a bit visionary. The span was finished before the Bayshore Freeway along the western edge of the bay existed as a bridge connector. That part of Highway 101 wasn't completed until 1937. The bridge project went private. Local realtor F.H. Drake and banker Frank Town formed the Dumbarton Bridge Company, selling stock in $100 chunks to cover the $2.5 million construction budget. They hoped to make it back with nickel tolls. It did, but it took 16 years. And the bridge got its name from Dumbarton Point on its eastern shore, which was itself named because the marshland there reminded someone of Dumbarton, Scotland. Back in 1927, the Chron- Chronicle headline read, Span Boon to Football Fans. Noted that 16 miles were saved by spanning the bay, which I guess was important if you were wanting to attend the big game between Cal and Stanford. 
but notes the current piece, Cal and Stanford boosters weren't the only ones celebrating. Realtors were thrilled, announcing new developments in Redwood City and Atherton with hundreds of new housing units. San Carlos seemed designed in response to the bridge. Hearty congratulations were sent from around the Bay. San Francisco Mayor Sonny Jim Rolfe joined industry and union leaders in public praise, clearly inspired by the potential that was thereby being unlocked. A full-page ad from the Port of San Francisco read, More bridges will come, and they did. I do find it a bit sad to note that the, the ritzy town of Atherton on the peninsula tried to stop the construction of the bridge because they said it would destroy the character of the town. And apparently that got thrown out of court because no judge uh, wanted to concede that destroying the character of a place was bad. For its part, Atherton was able to retain its exclusive nature by uh, (laughs) a clever arrangement of um, streets that all go around it. Something one discovers when uh, one tries to ride his bike from the East Bay over to the coast by means of the Dumbarton Bridge. Back in the day when the Dumbarton was just a few feet above the Bay Waters, like its uh, soon-to-be sister bridge to the north, the San Mateo Bridge, it was somewhat mocked for the fact that while people could commit suicide by jumping off some of the taller spans, this could not be done by the more southerly bridges. I remember as a boy my grandfather telling the joke about the guy who tried to commit suicide by jumping off the San Mateo Bridge which at that time was, I'm sure, 10 feet above the water. But just as progress came to the uh, orchards of the South Bay with with increased development, so too did the high-rise, which now exists as the current Dumbarton Bridge, provide opportunities. I can report with some mixture of sadness and, and horror that upon riding my bike back to the Fremont area from the peninsula, I came over the Dumbarton Bridge. At the top, there were two cars. The occupants of one of the cars was directing traffic around the two of them. I assumed that someone had run out of gas. When I pedaled my bike up at the top of the span, I addressed the people directing traffic and said, "Uh, did you run out of gas? They said, no, a guy just jumped. And indeed, apparently someone had parked his car, got out, sat on the ledge for a while, a brief while, long enough for the car behind him to stop, at which point he leapt. The couple at the top said that his shoes emerged, but he did not. Some years back, we reflected upon uh, this this sad story of people jumping off Bay Area bridges. We were talking at that time about the Golden Gate, because an effort was underway to put a suicide prevention barrier beneath the bridge. And at the cost of several million dollars, such a structure was erected. Well, actually, I looked it up, and it was more like $76 million dollars. When we last talked about this in the program many years back, we were skeptical that having to jump twice was going to have the desired effect of stopping people from jumping off once. I went to look up the follow-up on this, and guess what? They're not publishing statistics anymore about this. It's felt that to describe the fact that people are still jumping off the bridge will encourage more people to jump off the bridge, particularly since, at least in one case, Somebody jumped off with a numbered T-shirt, the number on his shirt revealing what number suicide that was going to make him. Anyway, with two minutes left in the show, I'm determined not to end on jumping off bridges. So what we need to do is pull out that 5,000 joke summary from several shows ago and extract a few 
moments of mirth. All right, let's do three. My body is a temple. The problem is it looks and feels like it was destroyed by the Romans 2,000 years ago. How about you should never run away from your problems? Unless, of course, your problem is you're being chased by a bear. And finally, I got so drunk last night, I ended up taking a bus home. That may not seem like a big deal to you, but I'd never driven a bus before. That about does it. This program was produced by Edwin Breland. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. The next four editions of this program will be encore presentations from our archives. Yours truly may try to check in while traveling. We'll see how that works out. In the meantime, we'll see you in September with some new shows. But we're quite confident the ones between now and then will also meet your approval. Meet me in September When things get better Will you take me there And if it don't get better Until December You can leave me there Yes, no, I'm not ready that far along